Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your throne this morning again as your people whom you have chosen and redeemed in your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for the full salvation that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, purchased for his people, purchased by his blood. And Lord, we thank you that you resurrected him from the dead for it was impossible for him to be kept by death. It was impossible for him to be overcome by the grave. And Lord, we thank you that you sent such a one who had the power over the grave to be the one who would conquer death and sin and judgment and the power of the evil one. And Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you now for your Holy Spirit who has recorded these things for us and continues to teach these things to us that we may know them and that we may believe in them. And we pray, Lord, for all your people who are scattered across all the corners of the earth that perchance you may call them even through the preaching of this message. And Lord, may you grant hearing, give ears to your people, the ones who are hearing now and those who shall hear whenever they listen to this message. Lord, may you do this for the sake of your gospel and for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We pray in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Praise the Lord. If we had to go back about 2,000 years ago, this month, things were already heating up between the Jews and the Lord Jesus Christ. The tension, the hatred was already boiling because the Lord had an appointment with the cross. And he was doing everything that needed to be done to make sure that the Jews would put him on the cross. There was no other way. Christ had to be put on the cross. And praise the Lord that he had to be put on the cross. We, as always, when we have communion, we want to teach about the work of Christ and the person of Christ so that we are just not eating crackers just to satisfy hunger. We have to understand what these represent. We have to understand what work of Christ was being communicated to us by a remembrance of the Lord's Supper. And we go today into the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. Zechariah 13, verses 1 to 7. And we're going to hear the prophet Zechariah say some things. Some things that are impossible not to link them to Christ. And it's impossible to read the Bible anywhere and not be linking things to Christ. We have to ask the Lord to open things for us that we may understand what it is that would have us understand about Christ and his work. So this is what the word of the Lord says through Zechariah. And again, it's going to be chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I'll cut off the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, You shall not live, for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. Verse 4. Also it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. And they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. But he will say, I am not a prophet. I am a tiller of the ground. For a man sold me as a slave in my youth. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? Then he will say, Those which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Verse 7. 
Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I'll turn my hand against the little ones. That's the word of the Lord. And for those who like titles, the title of our message is The Wounds of a Friend. The Wounds of a Friend. In this chapter we have here recorded for us in verse 1 to 6 the fountain that God is going to open for the remission of sins and the conviction of the false prophets. And then in verses 7 and 9, we are going to have the death of Christ and the saving of the remnant of God's people. And as I said in my opening statements, we cannot gather together as the body of Christ and not hear the gospel preached in one format or another. And we cannot have communion without teaching what it is that Jesus Christ accomplished for us in his life and death. The Lord Jesus Christ was not wounded by the sword of God so as to try and save some people or to make salvation possible. God never tries to do anything. What he intends to do, that is what he does. Let there be light and there was light. The light did not try to argue and have a conversation and say, oh, what time should I come? The light came at the time that the Lord commanded it to come. God raised his sword against his shepherd for the full payment of our sins. He raised his sword against his shepherd for the full payment of our sins. And this work was already prophesied in the scriptures. And when he came, he came to fulfill it and to accomplish it. And so he would say to the Jews in John 5:39 as we've been learning from the book of John, he said to the Jews, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they that testify of me. So these are the scriptures that Jesus is talking about. These scriptures testify of him and of his work. And we hear Jesus saying the same thing in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, verses 25 to 27. This was after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus. We are told that he came and was listening to the conversation that some of his disciples had or were having. And he played ignorant of what it is that was happening. But later on, he said this to them, all foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And we are told then, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. That was a long sermon. That was a long sermon. I wish to have a copy of that sermon too. So if anything, if my sermon feels like it's long, you know where I'm getting it from. <laughs> Praise the Lord for Jesus Christ. So God has from the beginning been preaching about the person and work of Christ. As soon as man shows up, as soon as creation happens, God is already preaching Christ. So creation was made for the purpose of revealing Christ, for the purpose of setting the stage for the coming of Jesus. And as I've said, and as Jesus has been claiming, if we read the scriptures, and we don't find him, it means we are not understanding the scriptures right. And even more importantly, to have a whole sermon 
from, say, Genesis or Exodus, where you're teaching people about how they can be like Moses, how they can be faithful like Joseph, is to use the scriptures in vain. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying, go and look to Joseph for some encouragement. If you need any encouragement, you have to look to Jesus. Jesus is our example. He is the standard of anything if you would want a sermon that tells you about exemplarism. So the Lord God in our passage here in Zechariah 13 speaks to the prophet and gives prophecy about the work and the identity of this person who is Christ. There's the identity of this one who is God's shepherd. Zechariah is a book that is full of prophecy and eschatology. And when we're talking about eschatology, we are talking about things of the future, the end time things, things that were due to happen from the time of the prophets looking into the future. Things of life and judgment. And in Zechariah 12, because Zechariah 13 is a continuation of what God has already been talking about in Zechariah 12. And in Zechariah chapter 12, we are told about the second advent. That is the coming of the Lord when God himself shall come and subdue all the enemies of his people. That is the punishment of the enemies of Judah. And in the process, he is also going to bring repentance to the nation of Israel and the Jews. Of course, the elect among that nation. So this is what it says in Zechariah 12.10. We are building the background to our message. And I'll pour out on the house of David... That's Zechariah 12, 10. And I'll pour out the house on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication so that when they look on me on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This scripture was fulfilled in part, when the Lord was put on the cross, as was recorded for us in John 19, verse 17, sorry, John 19, verse 37, where he says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. They shall look on him whom they pierced. And yet this same scripture would be completely fulfilled in the second coming. Of the Lord, when the Jews would again look at the Christ whom they rejected and would weep bitterly over him, when he opens their eyes that they may see him and know him, like what happened with Joseph and his brothers in Egypt. So, when the Lord returns, he shall pour upon his chosen people the spirit of grace and supplication. He shall give them the gift of the Holy Spirit who will cause them to experience the grace of God in repentance. Repentance is a gift of God. Repentance only happens by the working of the Holy Spirit. Men cannot repent by themselves. They are not able to repent by themselves. So when the Lord returns, the Holy Spirit will regenerate and convict his people and remove the blindness they had over the Lord Jesus Christ. And evidence of that is they would cry out in repentance. For none can know who Jesus is unless they have been given the spirit of grace and supplication. But this is a problem with the modern church. They think that they can know Jesus by themselves without the Spirit. That they can make Jesus, a Jesus whom they have never seen, they think they can make him into something. The Spirit has to be given for you to know anything about Jesus. The Spirit has to be given 
for you to make a confession of the person of Jesus. So the Spirit is going to be poured out. Poured out. If you are pouring something out, you are giving something in full measure. The Spirit of God is going to be given in full measure to God's people that they should look on Him. And those who would not have been saved by then, they are going to cry out and say, Okay, that's Him. (laughs) That's Him. And they shall mourn for Him. They shall see Him whom they have rejected. Not this man. Give us Barabbas. Not this man without a name. Give us the sinner Barabbas who has a name. The murderer. Not this blasphemer. Crucify him, crucify him. That's what they said in his first coming. But when he returns, they shall see him for who he is and they shall mourn over him. So Zechariah comes and makes this prophecy about the work of Christ and say, now we are going to chapter 13, verse 1. We are going to verse 1. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and impurity. In the day that the Lord shall come, he shall grant repentance to Jerusalem. A fountain shall be opened, as I said. But this prophecy is a twofold prophecy. It's a twofold prophecy because it anticipates the first coming of the Lord, the first opening of the fountain of Christ's blood on the cross. The one who came by water and blood, that's the first opening of the fountain. And that is the basis on which the fountain is going to be poured in the second coming. Secondly, it anticipates the fountain to be opened again in the Lord's second coming, not as the Lord dying again, because the Lord is not going to die again. And yet the same fountain is going to be opened in the second coming. The fountain is going to be opened in the second coming. And this fountain is going to be applied to the conscience of God's people. It's going to be applied that those who are dead may rise to life, those of, of the nation, especially of the nation of Israel, because right now we are in the phase, according to Apostle Paul, where God is working his will in the church, in the Gentile world. Until the fullness of the number of Gentiles have come in, then God will go and deal with Israel. So God has a plan to this. There's actually a number that he has of those who shall be saved. And when that fullness of the number of Gentiles have come in, then he will go and deal with Israel. That's God's plan. So the cross is that fountain of grace and mercy the grace and mercy that never dries up. If you pour out a bucket full of water, in less than two seconds, that bucket will be empty. But not so with Christ. Once he tilts his bucket full of his grace and mercy, it keeps coming. It keeps pouring out. So it never dries out. And this fountain of the blood of Christ is given to cleanse from sin and impurity. It was for cleaning from sin and impurity, and it shall be for cleaning of sin and impurity. The Lord, when he was poured out, was removing our sin, our lack of righteousness and impurity, our lack of holiness. We are sinful beings and we are impure beings. So the Lord's blood was poured out for the removal of sin 
and for the removal of impurity. And that is why Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1.31 that Jesus Christ is our sanctification. He is our righteousness and he is our redemption. So all those things are what the blood of Christ is working for us. And so the prophet says in verse 2, It will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I'll cut off the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. And I'll also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. So this is one of the things that the blood, this fountain, is going to accomplish. The fountain that will be poured out is going to accomplish very specific work. It will not only remove sin and impurity, but it will also remove the idols from the hearts of God's people so that those idols would not be remembered and worshipped anymore. This sin and impurity of man is that we do not want to worship the true God. We do not want to worship the true God, but would rather, we still love to worship, but we won't worship the true God. We'd love to worship our own idols because we can manage our idols. We can tell our idols what we want them to do for us. So we see even Israel commanding Aaron to make them a golden calf that would go before them, right in Mount Sinai, right where they've heard the voice of God. They know exactly what is going on, but they come to Aaron and say, make us God that shall go before us. What about this God who has just delivered you from the hand of Pharaoh? No, 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 we don't want that God. You make us a new God. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, they even acknowledge that it's Moses who brought them out of the land of Egypt. We don't know what has become of him. We don't know what has become of him. So you make us some golden calf. So these people, they know who the true God is, but they insist on having an idol made for them. An idol made after their own image because they say, make us one like the one that we want. They could carry their idols around and manipulate them. And this is why I always say I'm very suspect of people who are so much into baby Jesus. They love baby Jesus because the Jesus of the manger can be put in a stroller. They love the baby Jesus because he can be carried around and look sweet and vulnerable and can be given a sippy cup. But the grown Jesus, the resurrected and exalted one, that one is a much more difficult Jesus to deal with. And many people don't really like to hear about that one. And you see, even the heathens love the Jesus of the manger. The heathens love him because he is powerless, at least according to their thinking. But when we come and tell them about the reason, <laughs> the one who is seated on the right hand of God, who is the sovereign one, they don't want to hear that. They will say, we won't let this man to rule over us. They don't want to hear that Jesus. So when the Lord comes, he is going to solve some other problem. And this problem is of false prophets. Israel, as now, was plagued by false prophets who prophesied lies to God's people. And we are told here that the problem of false prophets is empowered by unclean spirits. Whether these false prophets know it or not, it doesn't matter. But the word of the Lord here says, it's because of the unclean spirit in the land 
that is causing these people to prophesy the lies that they are prophesying. But these spirits are instruments in the Lord's hand to do whatever he wants to do with them. God is the one who sends these unclean spirits to men who do not like the truth, that they may prophesy a lie. And you're not going to hear this from a lot of people. 1 Kings 22, verse 18 to 23. 1 Kings 22, verse 18 to 23. This is not a passage that you're going to hear from a lot of pulpits, but it's in the Bible. 1 Kings 22, 18 to 23. Then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. The Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this while another said that. Verse 21. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I'll entice him. The Lord said to him, How? And he said, I'll go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, You are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets. And the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. It's the deceiving spirit that came at the direction of the Lord and he grants them that they will be successful at the mission. Successful that these lying prophets are going to accomplish the work that God has given them. That's sovereignty. (laughs) That's the God of the Bible. But in that day, there shall not be any false prophet because the unclean and deceiving spirit shall be no more. The devil and his angels shall be no more. But this is what will happen. Verse 3. We are back to Zechariah 13. And if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, You shall not live For you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who gave birth to him, who pierced him through when he prophesies. And if anyone should attempt to prophesy a lie, even his own parents shall pierce him. That is, kill him. Obviously that has not happened yet. Because we still have a lot of these lying prophets who are decreeing and declaring things that never come to pass and are getting away with it and their parents have not killed them yet. Imagine how many parents would have, would have killed their prophet sons on TB and by now. It means the unclean spirit is yet to be removed from the land. We have the unclean spirit in this land as we speak. Remember, as I said, this prophecy of Zechariah is very eschatological. It's talking about future things, end time things. But also, it is layered eschatology. It's not just prophesying of things that are happening at one particular instance in the future, but it's more like an onion. It has layers to it. It has layers to it. So not everything is going to happen at the same time. Because you would have thought that this would have ended with the first coming of the Lord. But no, when he came, he came to be crucified and he resurrected. And there's still going to be future fulfillment of everything that was spoken of there. So verse 4. Also it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, and they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive, 
But he will say, I am not a prophet. I am a tiller of the ground. For a man sold me as a slave in my youth. So another feature of this time is that those who prophesy lies shall be ashamed of their visions. And we do not see them getting ashamed yet. They still have their big TV ministries and they prophesy lies every single day. And we are told here that Elijah, well, in the Old Testament, the prophets, and and this has the picture of Elijah for us. We know that Elijah used to put on a leather belt around his waist as we would let us see John the Baptist wearing. This was the same regalia that they used to have. You could say if they had a mall, they were buying it from the same store. But this was the kind of, it was almost like a dress code for the true prophets of God. You could tell that this man is a true prophet of God by what they wore. But that dress code has changed. They are not wearing the leather belt anymore. They are wearing the nice white suits. The nice white suits. And they have a big TV ministry. I'm, I'm telling you, there are very, very few people that you can pinpoint on TV. I would say John MacArthur is probably one of the few that you can pinpoint and say, this guy has a TV ministry and is preaching the truth. Almost every one of them is teaching the same thing. And they're lying. They're not teaching the gospel. So what is happening, it means they are preaching by the same spirit. It's the same spirit of falsehood that has them preaching that. So these prophets, the prophets of our day, (laughs) they are prophesying lies. And this is what God says of them in Ezekiel 22, 28. Here prophets, that is the prophets of Israel, have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. It's just stuff coming from their imagination. I have a word for you from the Lord. You're going to get that house, Brother Robert. (laughs) So this is what we've been seeing happening in our own day of prosperity gospel. God wants you to be this and that gospel. False visions and divining lies. But in this day, when the spirit of grace has been poured, they shall make a true confession and say, I am not a prophet. I am not a prophet. I am a tiller of the ground, for a man sold me as a slave in my youth. (laughs) They shall say in their shame, I know nothing about what God has said. I never preached on TBN. I am just an honest tiller of the ground. I've always been growing vegetables and fruits. Look at my farm. And I'm telling you, a lot of these TV preachers could be helped if they actually were tilling the land and growing some organic vegetables and fruits for the nation. That would be a much more worthwhile exercise and use of their time and not preaching and lying to God's people. Verse 6. We are building the background. You may wonder and say, where are we going to find Christ? He's in there. (laughs) He's in there. He's coming. Let's go to verse 6. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? Then he will say, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. One will ask of these false prophets and say, what happened to you? What are these wounds? What are these strokes? What are these marks between your hands? Apparently, those who worshipped certain false deities were required to have marks imprinted into their hands and bodies as a mark 
of their loyalty to that particular deity. And we have here in Revelation 13, 15 to 17. Revelation 13, 15 to 17, we have a picture of what this would look like. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast. Talking about the beast. So that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So the beast is coming here as some false god that has to be worshipped. But listen to this. And he causes all, the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who is the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. The mark was given by the beast that came from the earth that all may worship him. So you see the marking. So this is not anything new. This has always been happening. That whenever men were showing or exercising their loyalty towards a particular false deity, they would be marked that way. So here we hear the interrogator in verse 6. The cross-examiner. He comes to this guy who used to be a false prophet. And is not satisfied with what the false prophet is saying. So he presses the false prophet to tell where he got his marks from. The false prophet is saying, I do not prophesy anymore. The false prophet is trying to defend himself from the accusations. He says, I do not prophesy anymore. I am not a false prophet. But the interrogator, the cross-examiner, sees these wounds. And say, no, 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 no. What about those wounds? What happened to you? Are these not wounds that were inflicted upon you in the honor of your false God? Do not try to hide and pretend that these marks were not from some allegiance to some false God. So the cross-examiner sees the wounds as self-inflicted. In the service of idols. Self-inflicted in the service of idols as when Elijah confronted Baal's prophets in 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings 18.25-29. We are making the transition now. Hear this from 1 Kings 18 to... Sorry, 1 Kings 18 verse 25 to 29. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it for, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal answers. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they lived about the altar which they made. And it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he is occupied or gone, as, gone aside or is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. Verse 8, So they cried out with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom, with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. When midday was passed, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. So this is how people who were engaged in false worship of idols marked themselves. But here in this prophecy, Zechariah tells us in verse 3 of chapter 13, that the parents, in the time to come, the parents would try to kill their own sons who were prophesying falsely. 
and it's possible that this son may actually have escaped. His parents were trying to kill him. So he has been wounded by his own parents. The interrogator wants to establish the facts so that if necessary, he may condemn the false prophet by himself. So here we have interpretations that you can offer to try and understand what is happening in this conversation. Is this false prophet saying he actually had those wounds from service to a particular idol, or are these wounds that he got when he was, was almost getting killed by his own parents? All those are possible explanations, and they make sense, and they are um, relevant to what is being said. But this statement is a statement that is loaded with much meaning that can easily evade us. This is not just about the false prophet. Remember, the book of Zechariah is a very messianic book. And some commentators actually say it is the most messianic of all the books in the Old Testament. So if it is one of the most messianic books in the Old Testament, there has to be some understanding to be had from this confession of this false prophet. And with that in mind, we have to take another look at the prophecy to see the multi-layered nature to it and what God was teaching by it. And, of course, this is a communion sermon, and I would not have picked this one up if this text did not preach about the work of Christ. The prophecy condemns the false prophet as a liar. You have to get that. The prophecy condemns the false prophet as a liar, and that gives us the picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. It gives us a picture of the accusations made against our Lord Jesus, who was condemned as what? Jesus was condemned as a false prophet. Jesus was condemned as a false prophet. The accused person, the one who is the false prophet, admits the charge brought against him and says, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends, these wounds are the ones of which I was wounded in the house of my friends. The mocker comes to the Lord and says, If you are innocent, as you claim, if you are the Christ, as you claim, if you are a true prophet of God, as you claim, tell me, why have you been raised on the cross? What about those wounds between your arms? Those wounds could not be had by anyone who is not a false prophet. Those wounds could not be had by anyone who is not a false prophet. Hear this from Matthew 27, 38 to 44. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hailing abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, verse 40, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. You've been making a claim that you are the son of God. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and will believe in him. Verse 43, he trusts in God, let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. Verse 44, the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. If you are the son of God, why are you being hanged upon the tree of shame? The cross. If you are the son of God, rescue yourself and us. Or let God come and rescue you. 
John 10, verse 31 to 33. John 10, 31 to 33. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus is here being accused of being a false prophet. He is coming and claiming to be the son of God. Listen to this. Matthew 26, 57 to 68. Matthew 26. Matthew 26, 57 to 68. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now had the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? The Jews understood that by Jesus claiming to be the Son of God, he was also claiming to be God. And that could not happen, and so he had to be a false prophet according to their way of thinking. Because remember, what a prophet was or who a prophet was. The prophet was one who spoke on behalf of God to the people. And Jesus is coming and saying, I am coming from God. I am the prophet of God. I am coming with the word of God to you. And to the ears of the Jews, they're hearing him saying, he is God. And it can be. We know this guy. We know his guy, we know his parents, we know his brothers, we know his sisters, and we know where he lives. And he can't be the prophet that Moses talked about. So listen to this. And if a man then would come and make such claims as Jesus was making, according to the law, there was a law according to the false prophet. The law said, If someone came and presumed to speak in my name and what they speak does not come to pass, guess what? They should be stoned to death. That prophet should die. Deuteronomy 18.20. Deuteronomy 18.20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, the prophet who presumes to speak a word, just a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So the Jews are thinking this way. The Jews are thinking this way. They are thinking this man that we know is making such high claims and it cannot be true. And because he's making such high claims, he has to be stoned to death. So they sought to test his prophetic power and said, prophesy to us, who is the one who hit you? Of course, the Lord knew who hit him. 
And uh, that person is actually in trouble. <laughs> he knew exactly who hit him. So he says, in prophecy, in Zechariah, prophesy to us who is the one who hit you. And he says in prophecy, Zechariah is speaking by the Spirit of God. Zechariah is not making up things. It is Christ who is speaking through Zechariah. These are the wounds suffered in the house of my friends. These are my friends. These are my people. I came to my own and my own did not receive me. Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. The wounds that the Lord sustained were sustained in the house and company of his own people. In the house and company of his friends, the ones that he came to save. And it is you and I who are his friends. It is you and I who inflicted the wounds to the hands of the Lord. And when those wounds were inflicted to him, they were inflicted because we were the false prophets. But he had to stand in our place and be accused as a false prophet, even though he was not a false prophet. Listen. John 1, 11, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And this was not a problem of the Jews. You take any nation, Jesus was going to go on the cross. If Jesus had gone to Canada, guess what? They're putting him on the cross. If Jesus had gone to Brazil, guess what? They are putting him on the cross. It doesn't matter where Jesus would have gone. You put him in Siberia, the Russians are putting him on the cross. So this is not a Jewish problem. This is a man problem. But the very curious statement that the Lord has here in Zechariah is in chapter 7 because as soon as that statement is made in verse 6, God shows up and says again, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I'll turn my hand against the little ones. I'll turn my hand against the little ones. The Lord God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ says, Awake or sword against my shepherd. Which shepherd? There were lots of shepherds in Israel. The Father says, Against the man, war. So this shepherd is a man. This shepherd is a man, but also he is an associate of Jehovah. He is an associate of of Jehovah, the one who is close to me, the one who is my companion, which means that this man is more than man. This man is more than man. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. He is the son of God. He is the companion of God. He is a God-man. He is a God-man a companion and friend of Jehovah. And this great shepherd of the sheep would come and fulfill this very prophecy and say in Matthew 26, 31, Matthew 26, 31, then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So Jesus quotes Zechariah 13, 7. So this man who comes as the great shepherd of the sheep, the one who is going to be struck by Jehovah, is also an associate of Jehovah. He is a companion of Jehovah. But when was the shepherd struck by his father? After the Jews had nailed him to the cross. After the Jews had nailed him to the cross. And we know the Lord Jesus Christ was on the cross.
from 9, right, in the morning. And then 3 p.m., we had darkness for three hours. And what was happening? The Lord God was pouring his wrath on him. Jesus could not be killed by nails. Jesus could not be killed by nails. The one who created the world and the universe could not be killed by some three last nails. He took his life by himself. He said, I have this commandment from the Father to lay down my life and to take it back up. No one takes my life away from me. No one. Not the Jews, not the Gentiles, not the nails. Jesus achieved his own death. And the Father poured his wrath on him. The Father pulled out his sword on Christ, on his very companion, his companion from eternity, for your sake. This is like you taking your sword and killing your wife for the sake of a friend. Not a wife that you hate, but a wife that you so love. But even that is easy to do because we are sinners. But the Lord God pulls out his sword on this very companion of his. Not because his companion had performed any sin. No, his companion was sinless. But it was on your account that the sword was pulled out and he was struck. And this companion would come for you, his friends. <laughs> you see, the payment of sins can only happen by the work of God in Christ. You do not add toward the payment of your sins. It's, it's impossible. God, when he pulled his sword, he was not saying, okay, I appreciate the 1% that you did for me, but let me give him some more strokes. No. All the strokes that Christ got, the strokes that saved us, were from the hand, were from the sword of the Father. Listen to John 10, 11 to 15. I am the good shepherd. Oh, it is that shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So if the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, it means the sheep don't die. Because he has given himself in place of the sheep. The sheep were supposed to die, but he goes in their place and he goes between them and the enemy. He goes between them and the hyenas and the lions. And he would rather offer himself to feed the hungry lions and the beasts of the forest that his sheep may live. He says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. But he says, in contrast, I am the good shepherd. I am the owner of the sheep. He owns the sheep before he even gets killed. How did he own the sheep before he gets killed? Because the father gave him the sheep. Sounds like election. And he says, I know my own and my own know me. Even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So the good shepherd who is Jehovah's companion from eternity is the one who submitted himself to death on the cross in the hands of his friends. Isaiah 53, 4-5. 
We're getting done with this. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves um, esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for what? For our best life now. No. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was Christ for our happy marriages. No. He was Christ for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. God did not make healing possible. We were healed. If language actually means anything, he says we were healed when Christ was scourged. So we esteemed him stricken of God and afflicted because we thought him to be a false prophet. We thought he deserved to die because he was making himself to be equal with God, which he was and is. But there are a lot of many people, liberal, professing Christians, who say Jesus Christ is not God. I don't know where they got that from, but not from my Bible. We did not know that the Lord God had raised his sword against his companion and pierced him through for our transgressions. Those wounds were in his hands for our transgressions, for our iniquities, our well-being upon him, upon him, and by his caging we are healed. It was by his caging that we were healed. We were not healed by our choice, by our confession. We were healed by the caging of Christ. It was not and would never be that we would be healed by our works. Before and after we are saved. To say that is not to understand what God is teaching. And it's not to honor Jesus. And it is not to understand the gospel. We should want to vomit. And honestly so. We should want to vomit and feel nauseated at the suggestion that we add to our salvation by our works. We improve by our works, by our obedience the scourging of this associate of Jehovah. We should be sickened by people who think we are justified and could be justified by our own works in addition to Christ. Jesus was smitten of God. You have no capacity to be smitten of God. Salvation requires you to be smitten. Salvation does not require the drilling of boreholes. Salvation requires one who is the companion of Jehovah to come and be smitten on your behalf. After the resurrection, we know from Thomas that the wounds of the nails were still visible. And even in heaven, he still has them. As the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So if you would go up to him today. And you meet him. And ask him. What are these wounds between your arms? What are these? Because that's strange. You, you can't just be walking around with wounds. In your arms. Like we see some of these people. Who just been doing things to their nose and ears. What are those wounds, friends? If you come to Jesus and you ask him, what are these wounds between your arms? He will say to you, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Those with which I was wounded in your place. Those of which 
I was wounded for your sin, for your justification, for your sanctification. Those with which I was wounded to accomplish your redemption. And it was finished. And it was finished. So the Lord Jesus, by being wounded for us, he finished the work of our salvation. And that is what we commemorate in the Lord's table. As he said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Amen. Amen.